0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to au. If you'd like to open your Bibles up to um, Romans chapter 12, we're going, going to do something this morning that I don't do very often during the course of the year, and that's step away from Uh, a study of John's gospel or whatever the particular text is that we're studying in the series that we're studying to address some other issues. As I was preparing this late last night, Queensland voters had cast their vote and it looked likely that the Labor Party would be returned to power convincingly in Queensland. Some Christians are horrified that a political party that espouses some uh, some It must be said, some quite evil policies, particularly when it comes to abortion, should be elected in the first place, let alone re-elected. And uh, across the ditch, there's a presidential election about to happen in the United States. Millions of people have already cast their vote by post, and apparently the largest voter turnout in history in Texas already by post. Um, millions more will be voting on Tuesday in America, the hour Wednesday for what some are calling the most important election in living memory. Now, we're a long way from America here. So apart from an almost macabre fascination that we may have with American politics, their elections don't have any direct impact on us in Australia. So whether Donald Trump is re-elected to serve a second term, which is a horrifying thought for many who consider him little better than the Antichrist, or whether Joe Biden is able to oust him, which is equally horrifying for many others, it won't make much difference to our daily life here in Australia. There's been reports that should Biden win the election, there'll be an armed insurrection with people taking to the streets with their rifles to fight uh, against the result and try and prevent Biden from uh, taking power. And equally, should Trump be re-elected, there's... uh, expectation the streets will be filled with rioters, bashing strangers, looting shops and burning buildings in protest. The bitter hatred, the vitriol that is spewed by both sides against each other is terrifying to witness from a distance. I can't imagine what it must feel like to live amongst it every day. Now, while we're separated from this election by a vast ocean it's been truly said that when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. So we here in Australia will, will be watching with interest, and I hope we'll be watching, not with horror. It almost beggars belief that a nation can be so divided over politics. In some instances, that hatred is so deep that families and friends refuse to sit together at a meal table, even at Christmas time because they've become so divided by politics. Sadly, we're not immune to this disease here in Australia either. In recent years, we've also seen our politics descend into name-calling, dirty tricks, and opposition for the sake of opposition. Increasingly, it seems that us normally laid-back Aussies are unable to get along with each other because of differing political opinions. Now, I've got news for all those people who are getting worked up to the point of rage about the prospect of either Donald Trump or Joe Biden being elected in America or our candidates here in Australia. Neither Trump nor Biden are the messiah. Neither man will usher in paradise on earth. Neither man will be able to deliver utopia. But neither are they the Antichrist or the second coming of Adolf Hitler, as some people have intimated. And while I strongly disagree with some of their policies, Anastasia Pellaget in Queensland, the Daniel Andrews here in Victoria, are not the Antichrist either. So what is it that would cause me to step out of an ongoing series to address a current affairs issue? Something I rarely ever do because my conviction is that it's far more important that we speak of eternal things than it is that we speak of earthly and temporal things. That's not to say that our time on this planet doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters immensely. But we need to keep things in perspective. This earthly existence won't last. The problems that consume our thoughts today will be forgotten Tomorrow or next week or next year, seasons come and seasons go. I'm convinced we do well to spend more time looking beyond the now and into eternity. Ultimately, it doesn't matter in the long run who wins the White House this year, or any year for that matter. That will have no effect on eternity. One day... You won't care who was in government at any particular time in your life. Not only that, one day you will see God's wisdom in appointing certain leaders at certain points in history. But make no mistake about it, our leaders are, by way of the polling booth in democratic societies or by way of the sword in totalitarian nations, our leaders are appointed by God. He uses our votes to get the candidate he wants to lead our state and our country and even a mighty independent nation like the USA. Now, don't get the impression from this that I think that voting doesn't matter. It does, and I take it very seriously. I consider it both a privilege and a responsibility to vote, so much so that Whenever our elections come around, I check the policies of each candidate and each political party to determine how I'll rank them in our preferential voting system. And that includes how I rank all 50 or 60 or 80 Senate candidates. I take it seriously. And I make a point of going to the polling booth at our local primary school on election day to cast my ballot, rather than post the vote in. I have no particular objection. If you want to post your vote in, that's your choice. But I believe in voting, and I think the the whole ritual, the tradition of attending a polling booth is a valuable thing. I believe in voting, and I believe in voting intelligently and in voting wisely. But no matter how careful I am to choose who to vote for, I've discovered that God will always ensure that his candidate gets installed. And sometimes that means a morally reprehensible candidate may occupy the highest seats of power in our state or in our nation. Surely not. Surely God would not choose to install a candidate who promotes horrors like abortion up to the point of birth or nonsense about gender fluidity or evils like banning the church. But he does. In his inscrutable wisdom, sometimes he installs leaders whose sole purpose seems to be to destroy God's people. Anyone heard of Pharaoh? Or Nebuchadnezzar? How about Nero? Or Adolf Hitler? All of them installed by God. Paul wrote... In Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And that's a disturbing thought. All Governing authorities, whether good or bad, only rule and exercise their power by God's sovereign decree. But what would Paul know about this? After all, he didn't have to live under corrupt and immoral governments. He didn't have to live under the tyranny of the jackbooted authority that our leaders have exercised through this COVID lockdown. Oh, hang on. Paul lived under Roman emperors for whom life for others meant nothing. Now, that's not to downplay the horrors that may occur at the hands of any of these leaders. Just because they're instituted by God doesn't mean that we don't suffer at the hands of evil leaders. And in a democratic society, sometimes it means the candidate candidate who is most diametrically opposed to all I stand for, and who is most antagonistic to the church, will rule the land. Equally disturbing is that God warns us that those who resist the authorities that he has appointed are in fact resisting God himself and will be subject to judgment as a result. So God calls me and he calls you to do a number of things. Firstly, he calls us to obey our leaders. Now, that's not always easy to do, and there are qualifications to that. We don't obey our leaders blindly. There are times when scripture calls us to refuse to obey our leaders. But I suggest we need to think very carefully about the reasons why we choose to disobey. Secondly, we're called to pray for that leader and for his team. Again, it's not always easy to do, especially if we despise the decisions they make. But we're called to pray for them nonetheless. We're called to pray that they'll rule with wisdom and integrity, to pray that they will establish a just and a free society, to pray that they will bear the sword against the wicked, ensuring justice is done, pray that they will defend and protect the law abiding, pray that they will govern in such a way that there will be peace and stability and freedom for us to go about our business and our worship. We know that those things don't always happen. We're told to pray for them regardless. And thirdly, we're to trust God. Trust God that he knows what he is doing when he installs a wicked leader to rule over us. None of those things are easy to do. It's much easier to criticise and complain than it is to obey and to pray. And it's much more satisfying, too, because it appeals to the baser instincts of our nature. But the outworking of that is that we naturally begin to view with suspicion anyone who may support the candidate that we don't support. We begin to question their intelligence, their character their morals, and sometimes even their Christian faith. And then relationships begin to break down. Then the vitriol that dominates politics begins to spill over into our friendships and our families. It's tragic that we in Australia are following America's lead on this. But what disturbs me more is that vast numbers of Christians seem to be following the lead as well. Sadly, the COVID crisis seems to have brought out the worst in many people. It's been an exhausting grind. No one likes being locked down. No one likes being separated from friends and family. So many decisions that have been made by our leaders seem to make no sense. Some even seem to be punitive rather than helpful. For sure, our state government has made some head-scratching decisions. Are bottle shops really essential services? Why can they remain open when so many other businesses are forced to close down? I have my doubts if they're essential. Why can the supermarket be crowded with people while a menswear shop is not allowed to have one single customer in this store? Who can know? Did the police force sometimes overstep their authority? Without question. As a Christian, then, is the correct response to resist the authorities? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. That, I believe, is a matter of conscience and a matter of conviction. Because I don't see how you can draw a straight line from any biblical command to a decision to disobey the authorities. Rather, you have to weigh up a whole bunch of passages of scriptures and decide which ones have more weight for you. But other people read their Bibles and read the same passages and come to different conclusions legitimately and in good conscience. There's a couple of well-known American pastors and authors and speakers, um, John Piper and Al Mohler. Both of them are Southern Baptist ordained ministers. And yet they've come to different conclusions on who they should vote for in the presidential election. John Piper, for reasons he's laid out fairly clearly, has decided he can't vote for anyone at the moment. He considers the evils of of corrupt character to outweigh, to some extent, some of the evils of the Democrats' policies, Al Mola, in contrast, has weighed up the same evidence and the same scriptures and decided he can only vote for Trump, and has come out to say so, uh, which is something he wouldn't normally do to let people know who is who is voting for, who is right, who is wrong, who can be a hundred percent sure. Who of us can be confident? that God will give us a pass mark for our decisions when we, when we arrive at the pearly gates. Remember, those who resist the authorities installed by God will face judgment. But then didn't God bless the Hebrew midwives for disobeying Pharaoh? Yes, he did. It says that clearly, which just goes to show how difficult it can be be to make wise decisions, to obey or to disobey. You can justify your decision biblically either way. Therefore, we need to tread very carefully when we accuse a brother or a sister in Christ of being fearful and submissive for obeying government directives. Just as we need to be extremely cautious about getting angry at a fellow Christian about their seeming disregard for law or their apparent lack of concern for the health of others. If we go into Romans again, we'll see what Paul has to say about just these sorts of issues. Basically, all of Romans 12, 13 and 14 and on into chapter 15 address how Christians should get on with each other when they have differences of opinion. At the end of Romans 13, Paul mentions some non-negotiables, some black and white issues. You shall not murder. You shall not steal, he says in verse 9. And let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrelling and jealousy. But then when he gets to Romans 14, he begins to address matters of conscience. Matters of preference, matters of opinion. And he says in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. For one believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I can almost hear people saying, "Yeah, they're weak in faith. They need to toughen up." And that may be so. But what what does Paul say? Welcome him and don't quarrel over opinions. Maybe we should paraphrase Paul to bring it up to date with what's happening in churches and amongst Christians worldwide at the moment. Verse 2, we could say one person believes he may disobey the government while another complies with the government's directives. Let not the one who disobeys despise the one who obeys. Let not the one who obeys pass judgment on the one who disobeys. For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed who? The disobedient or the obedient? Both, of course. God welcomes both of them and is able to make them stand. So who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls and he'll be upheld. the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse five, one person believes resistance and protest is necessary, while another prefers to err on the side of caution and obedience to the government. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There it is. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Friends, whether you intend to actively resist our state government's directives to stay locked down, or whether you believe everyone should bite the bullet and stay home, you must be fully convinced in your own mind. Paul tells us later on in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he disobeys or if he obeys, because his action is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And he reminds us in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is destructive of Christian unity when one believer attacks another. How do we so lightly, so casually criticize and attack our brother or sister for their differing opinions and convictions? Again, I'm not talking about the non-negotiables of Christian faith, whether Jesus is really God, whether he rose from the dead, or whether we're free to commit adultery. I'm talking about matters of conscience. Paul goes on in verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In verses 15 and 16, For if your brother is grieved by your actions, you're no longer walking in love. By what you do, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That's what can happen. It seems you can destroy a fellow Christian. Would you wish to bear the weight of responsibility for destroying one for whom Christ died? Have you ever thought how serious is that charge? And you also run the risk of causing that good thing, that thing you are so passionate about, to be spoken of as evil by your actions. We should tremble before God for our arrogance that we're the only ones who know the right course of action. I might remind you that when debating how various governments have responded to the COVID crisis, there is no handbook on how to deal with it. There is no complete idiot's guide to global pandemics. I dare say all governments everywhere are doing what they believe is the right thing to do. And only history will determine who got it right. And who got it wrong? Not a single one of us has the insight or the wisdom, as we sit here today, to determine if they're doing it right or wrong. Continuing on, we'll take a selection of verses through Romans 14, verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food or for the sake of COVID responses. Destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats or by how he responds. It is good not to eat meat or drink drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. For what he approves. That's my biggest concern about these last several months. I've seen and heard too many believers around the world insisting their opinions and beliefs and preferences are the only correct ones, with the implication if you don't follow their example, then you're weak, submissive, rebellious, and you'll be at least partially responsible for the bad name of the church or the suppression of the church in our society. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that it matters how we treat each other. And in fact, it goes deeper than that. It matters how we think of each other. How you talk about other Christians publicly who you may disagree with tells the world what you think of God. And what you think of other Christians who you disagree with tells God what you think of him. Sometimes it's the only way non-Christians will even know that we're Christians. Jesus said, addressing his disciples at the Last Supper, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people, will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Has your love been evident towards other Christians who you may differ with? Has it been visible to outsiders that even though you may disagree with other Christians, you still love them and care for them and encourage them and refuse to say a bad word about them? You may decide that because you are strong in your faith, you have the right to exercise your liberty. And it's true, you do have that right. But Paul opens Romans 15 with this strong statement We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. For even Christ did not please himself. We must allow other Christians to have different opinions to us on matters of conscience. And we must take extraordinary care not to criticize or attack or belittle them for their opinions. Friends, the book of Romans may well be the jewel in the crown of the Bible. It contains the most glorious truths and it may well be the most profound document ever written in the history of mankind. And it's with good reason that people have welcomed martyrdom because they were so captivated by the promises contained in the letter to the Romans. And yet, full three chapters of Romans, it's about 20% of this profoundly theological book, is devoted to ensuring we all strive for harmony and peace with our fellow believers we really should take more notice of this. As important as our elections are, we are citizens of a different kingdom. As citizenship in Australia or the United States or Nigeria or Colombia or anywhere else is only temporary. But there are some things we do while citizens of this earth that will last on into eternity. Love for our brother and sister in Christ, encouraging them, building them up, bearing with their faults, and even when we disagree with them, bearing with their faults, is right up near the top of the list of the things that will last on into eternity. For your fellow believer, your brother and sister in Christ, regardless of your differences, is part of the bride that Christ shed his blood to purchase. If you are hoping that Trump or Biden wins the presidency or your favourite candidate in an election closer to home so that they will bring about a just society or a Christian society or any other type of society, don't hold your breath. You're expecting fallen people to lead other fallen people in a fallen world to undo the fall. But I've got news for you. So I said, neither Trump or Biden is the Messiah. Neither man will usher in the utopian paradise that their most rabid supporters hope for and seem to think that they'll bring about. Conversely, Neither man is the Antichrist. Hard to believe if you listen to their opponents, but neither of them will save society and neither will destroy society. And I know it's hard for some to believe, but Daniel Andrews is not the Antichrist either. He will not save or destroy this great state of ours. None of them, none of them have the power to operate outside of the bounds that God has set for them. Not one of them. None of them are able to do anything that God has not directed himself or permitted. There is only one ruler who will usher in paradise, heaven on earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he isn't waiting for an election to have permission to do so. When he returns, he will judge the living and the dead with justice and righteousness. And he will establish his kingdom on earth once and for all, renewing creation and reversing the effects of the fall. In that day, in that great day, there will be no more corrupt government leaders There will be no more reason to complain and agitate and criticise. But on that day, he will ask each one of us to give an account for how we treated our brothers and sisters in Christ. What will be my answer? What will be your answer? For we will have to answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We put so much stock in our own opinions and our own preferences to the point where we are so ready to attack brothers and sisters for whom you shed your blood, Jesus. Lord, we lament this propensity of ours to go on the attack, to judge others by standards that we don't hold ourselves to even. We repent, Lord, for our arrogance that we are the only ones who know the right way through tough situations. We lament the weakness of our faith, Lord, that forgets to trust you, that you install leaders that you want at the time you want, for the purposes that you want, Lord. And we lament our blindness to see your hand and the way you work in those times. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you forgive us for our stubbornness, our willfulness, our criticism of others. And Lord, would you cause a love to well up in our hearts that bears with each other, that encourages each other, that trusts each other, that loves each other, that rejoices and mourns with our brothers and sisters in Christ according to the circumstances. Lord, would you help us to keep a check on our tongues and on our keyboards, Lord, so that the only words that emanate from us are words that build up and not tear down, words that strengthen a brother or encourage a sister in Christ. Lord, we long for the day, Jesus, when you return and establish this heaven on earth, this perfect government, the day when every knee will bow before you, every tongue will confess that you are Lord, and everyone who has put their trust in you, Jesus, will rejoice at your leadership. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, bring that day about in the hurry, we pray, Lord. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray for the American election, that you will use them for good, that you will use them to achieve your purposes. We pray, Lord, for continued freedom to worship you. We pray for those nations where those freedoms have been taken away by corrupt leaders totalitarian leaders Lord, ones that you've instituted but Lord, but are still persecuting the church we pray for those that you'll give them strength Lord, under that persecution we pray for those leaders that you'll open their eyes to allow liberty and freedom and the gospel to be shared in their nations Lord, most of all we choose to put our trust in you today, that you know what you're doing, Lord, and that you will achieve your purposes. And Lord, we pray these things in the great and mighty name of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of all nations, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.